A Walk Through the Heart of Rome Rome is a city of magnificent ancient ruins, but it's also a city of intimate neighborhoods. This walk winds through an urban village of narrow lanes, panoramic piazzas, fanciful fountains, and some of Europe's best people-watching. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Thanks for joining me on a walk through a district I like to call the heart of Rome. We'll start in Campo di Fiori, one of the city's most colorful squares. We'll see a few grand monuments, like the stately Pantheon, plus ancient obelisks and ceremonial columns. We'll pass bubbling fountains, like Bernini's Four Rivers and the gushing Trevi Fountain. We'll see the Rome of today, a glitzy shopping mall, and the Capitol buildings for Italy's parliament. Most of all, we'll see Romans, the throngs of locals who love to get out of their stuffy apartments, stroll the streets, greet their neighbors, and just enjoy that ritual passeggiata. Allow about two hours for this mile-long walk that ends at Rome's gathering place, the Spanish Steps. This walk works well any time of day. In daytime hours, there's the Campo di Fiori Market and trendy fashion boutiques and a chance to actually go inside the Pantheon. But sunset brings unexpected magic. A stroll in the cool of the evening shows off the romance of the Eternal City at its best. Watch lovers straddling more than the bench. Jaywalk past Polizia in their bulletproof vests. And marvel at the ramshackle elegance that softens this brutal city for those who were born here and can't imagine living anywhere else. These are the flavors of Rome, best enjoyed after dark. Okay, let's get started. By the way, if you'll be visiting the Pantheon interior, be sure to download my companion audio tour of the Pantheon. Now, grab some coins for the fountain, a gelato for nourishment, and let's head out on a walk through the heart of Rome. To help us along the way, I've invited a good friend and virtual travel buddy. Welcome, Lisa. Ciao, Ricardo. Ciao, Bella. Lisa will give us helpful directions and sightseeing tips throughout the tour. And my first tip is to be sure you get our tour updates. Just press the icon at the lower right of your device. You'll find any updates and helpful instructions unique to this tour. Things like closures, opening hours, and reservation requirements. There's also tips on how to use this audio tour and even the full printed script. Yes, so pause for just a moment right now to review our updates and special tips. It's okay, we'll wait. And now, let's head out and take the pulse of this vibrant city on this walk through the, the heart, heart of, of Rome. Rome. The tour begins. Campo dei Fiori. Start in the square called Campo dei Fiori. Once in the piazza, get oriented by finding the statue in the middle of the square of a hooded monk. Rick? Thanks, Lisa. Campo dei Fiori, with its ever-changing ambiance, is the perfect place to kick off this colorful walk. Depending on when you're here, the square will be quite different. In the morning, this bohemian piazza hosts a fruit and vegetable market. In the evening, the cafes and restaurants that line the square predominate. Later at night, crowds of drunks make it a late-night frat party. 
With its neighborhood feel, it's hard to believe you're in a city of two and a half million people, the modern capital of a major economic power, and the center of government for 60 million Italians. Rome has no skyscrapers, no business district, and no obvious downtown. It's more a collection of urban villages, like this. Romans jealously guard their laid-back lifestyle, and nowhere is it clearer than right here in Campo dei Fiori. This piazza has been the neighborhood's living room for centuries. In ancient times, it was a pleasant meadow, literally a Campo dei Fiori, or field of flowers. Then, the Romans built a massive entertainment complex, the Theater of Pompey, right next to it. In medieval times, Christian pilgrims passed through on their way to the Vatican, and a thriving market developed. As popes modernized the city in Renaissance and Baroque times with urban renewal projects, this square kept its local flavor. It's the product of centuries of unplanned urban development. And today's Romans live amid the eclectic heritage of their ancestors. For example, take a look at the east end of the square. That's the end behind the monk statue. See how the ramshackle apartments are built right into the older parts? The pinkish-beige brick building on the upper story actually has two white columns incorporated into it. Do you see that? Those columns were once part of the wall of that theater of Pompey. The complex covered several city blocks stretching from here all the way to Largo, Argentina. This theater is where Julius Caesar was stabbed to death. I thought he was assassinated on the steps of the Senate. And you're right. But the Senate was temporarily renting space right here. Oh, I see. Now, who's the statue in the center of the square? And why is he here? His name is Giordano Bruno, and his dramatic life story reflects the spirit of nonconformity that still thrives in this neighborhood. Bruno was a Dominican priest back in the 1500s. He was outspoken right from the start. He wrote satirical plays tweaking church morals. He advanced the heretical notion that the earth revolved around the sun decades before Galileo. He had to flee Italy in order to avoid a charge of heresy. Perpetually on the run, Bruno roamed Europe's capitals, driven by his restless mind. In Geneva, he joined the Calvinists, until they also exiled him for his unorthodox views. In London, he met with Queen Elizabeth, but she found him subversive. In Germany, even the Lutherans excommunicated Giordano Bruno. Finally, he ended up back in Rome. Get a closer look at the statue's pedestal. The relief panels show scenes of what happened next. In 1593, Bruno was arrested by the Inquisition. He languished in prison for about six years, but refused to recant. So he was sentenced to death. He told his accusers, Perhaps you who pronounce this sentence are more fearful than I who receive it. On February 17, in the year 1600, the civil authorities led him to the stake, here on Campo dei Fiori. Bruno was offered a crucifix to hold, but he pushed it away. Then, they lit the fire, and he was burned right here on this spot. As the pedestal's inscription describes it, and the flames rose up. Well, that starts our tour off on a cheery note. To reach our next stop, face the same way Bruno is facing. Now, if Bruno did a hop, step, and jump forward, then turned left, he'd be going the direction we're headed. So face the way Bruno is, go left, 
and head down a short street called Via dei Baulari. As you head down Via dei Baulari, keep in mind that many street names reflect the tradition of the craftsmen who worked here. Baulari was the place of the chest and trunk makers. And even today, shops here sell suitcases. Nearby is the street of the crossbow makers. Great! I can go get my crossbow restrung. Oh, sorry, Rick, they closed. 800 years ago. Let's move on. Okay, but as you walk, remember, everywhere in this city, much of the footprint of ancient Rome, which had a population of a million, survives under your feet. Continuing down Via dei Baulari, you'll come to a square dominated by a magnificent palace. Palazzo Farnese Though just a block from Campo dei Fiori, the imposing palace and the square in front have a completely different feel. While the Campo is free and easy, the 16th century Renaissance Piazza Farnese seems to stress order. The palazzo was built by Pope Paul III of the Farnese family, perhaps best known as the man who hired Michelangelo to paint the Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel. The Farnese family was nouveau riche and needed to make a statement, so they hired Michelangelo to design the top story. Check out his huge cornice. His huge what? His cornice. That's the roof line that juts out. Oh. Michelangelo also added another crucial touch. He made the window in the very center of the facade a little wider than the others. This gave the whole facade a pleasant symmetry and focused attention on the balcony where the Pope gave speeches. By the way, note the flags over the entrance and the security presence. The palazzo now houses the French Embassy. This influential facade helped popularize a style that you'll see all along our walk. There's the main doorway with its big rustic stone blocks. There are pilasters, that is, half columns embedded into the facade, some round, some square. Windows are topped with triangular pediments or semi-arches. And the balustrade on the balcony is found in buildings both great and humble. And there are some nice cornices, too. Now turn your attention to the piazza itself. It's adorned with twin fountains. The Farnese's made the fountains using ancient granite tubs. They'd recently excavated these from the baths of Caracalla. The Farnese's had financed the archaeological dig, so they got first pick. These fountains are the first of a watery theme we'll see throughout our walk. Rome is famous for its fountains. They're part of the Roman heritage. In times past, fountains were functional. They provided the neighborhood with its water supply. These particular fountains are fed by an ancient aqueduct called the Aqua Vergina. It's the same source that feeds the Trevi Fountain and other fountains we'll see along this walk. And after 2,000 years, it's still bringing the water of life into the city. 
start heading back to Campo de Fiori. Once there, we'll be continuing straight across the square and down Via de Baulari to our next stop. Don't worry, Lisa and I'll guide you as you go. Just start heading back to Campo de Fiori. To Victor Emmanuel II Boulevard. As we approach Campo de Fiori again, remember that we'll pass directly through the square and exit on the other side. Just keep walking as I talk. By the way, the statue of Bruno is a symbol for Rome's counterculture to this day. The statue was erected in 1889 when the new secular state of Italy was jostling for power with the Vatican. The statue is built facing a Vatican building. The Vatican objected, but they were overruled by angry neighborhood locals. Ever since, this place has been a rallying point for anti-authoritarian demonstrations. Locals gather here to carry on the feisty spirit of Bruno, a martyr to freedom of thought. Exit the Campo, heading east down Via de Baulari. As you slalom through the crowds, notice the crush of cheap cafes, bars, and restaurants. It's clear that the local scene is changing, becoming more a playground for tourists, students, and locals visiting from the suburbs. Rome, once a family town, is following urban demographics. Lots more single professionals. Families are small, only about a child and a half per couple. High rents are driving families out. And with each passing year, the Campo de Fiori market sells more gifty edibles and fewer basic fruits and vegetables. But that's hardly tragic. That mix of old and new has always been what makes Rome so great. And that's what this walk is all about. You'll soon be approaching something very new. A busy cross street with heavy traffic. The street is named for Victor Emmanuel II. Italy's first ruler after unification in 1871. This wide, straight boulevard slices right through the tangled lanes of the neighborhood. It's clear it was built after Italy's unification, when the city was modernized. Look left and right down the street. The facades are mostly 19th century neo-Renaissance. Cross the street to the other side. Noisy streets like this are becoming increasingly rare in Rome today. To make Rome more livable, the city's limiting traffic to only those with special permits. City buses, taxis, motorbikes, delivery vans, and residents. Oh, and also so-called dark cars. Things like limos. These are for VIPs and for friends of politicians who can grease a palm to wrangle a permit. Once across the busy street, angle left at the statue of Minghetti. He was an early prime minister. Make your way down the narrow street to the left of the Museum of Rome. It's called Via di San Pantaleo. We're headed for the end of the block. Today's Romans have a definite reputation among other Italians. Unlike their more buttoned-down neighbors to the north, Romans are seen as fun-loving, tolerant, and friendly. They're also a bit vulgar. The Roman accent sounds crude. Italy's edgiest comedians come from here. And much as the rest of Italy tries, they just can't say the phrase, damn your dead relatives, quite as effectively as the Romans. 
A block down at the corner on your right, you'll find a beat-up old statue. The Statue Called Pasquino This statue is heavily eroded, but much loved. It's one of Rome's oldest. It dates from the 3rd century B.C. The statue depicts a scene from the Trojan War. King Menelaus is cradling the body of his dying son. Around 1500, the statue was discovered near here. It was nicknamed Pasquino. No one's quite sure why. He became the first of Rome's so-called talking statues. For 500 years, this statue has functioned as a kind of community bulletin board. People posted their complaints about the authorities, often in the form of a satirical poem. In times past, it let the poor speak out anonymously against the rich and powerful, without fear of recrimination. And to this day, you'll see Pasquino plastered with political posters, strike announcements, and grumbling graffiti. Poor Pasquino looks literally worn down by centuries of bitching. Facing Pasquino, veer along the left side of the statue. Go straight ahead, up Via di Pasquino. This narrow street is typical of the neighborhood. You're walking over cobbles and alongside rough stone buildings, jostling with people, dodging vespas. This is actually one of the joys of this old part of town. You make your way through the maze of narrow streets, then suddenly you pop out and boom, there's a beautiful, spacious piazza. Spoiler alert, that's what's coming just ahead. We'll be entering a lively piazza, a place where all the layers of Rome are on display, ancient, medieval, Baroque, and the Rome of today. The street opens up at one end of an oval-shaped square called Piazza Navona. Piazza Navona. Stand here at the end and take in the square. It's dotted with fountains, busy with outdoor cafes, lined with palazzos and churches, and thronged with happy visitors. This long, oblong piazza has been a center of Roman life since ancient times. You might be able to guess by its shape what it started as. It was a racetrack. It was part of the training grounds built here by Emperor Domitian. Around A.D. 80. A.D. 80? Yes, A.D. 80. Okie dokie. That was the same year the Colosseum opened and Rome was at its peak. A.D. 80. But much of what we see today came much later, in the 1600s. The whole place got a major urban renovation, though it kept the same footprint as the ancient racetrack. 
At the time, the popes were trying to put some major scandals behind them, and urban development like this was a peace offering to the public. Rome was energized and laying out more efficient street plans, grand palaces, and great public spaces, like Piazza Navona. Start walking through the square toward the first of three fountains. As you walk, on your left, the first building is the Palazzo Pamphili. It's now the Brazilian embassy. The Pamphili nobles were big patrons of the arts, and one of them became Pope Innocent X, the man who created the square as we see it today. Three Baroque fountains decorate the piazza. Circle around the first one so you can view it from the front. The statue in the center is of a Moor or African wrestling with a dolphin. He's surrounded by a ring of tritons blowing on their conch shells. Back in 17th century Rome, Moors represented all that was exotic and mysterious. The most famous fountain, though, is just ahead in the center of the square. Let's go there. You can see that the Four Rivers Fountain is topped with an Egyptian obelisk. This is the first of several of these ceremonial pillars we'll see along this walk. Rome has 13 ancient obelisks, more than any other city in the world. The ancient Romans loved obelisks. They were big and exotic, and by bringing them to Rome, it demonstrated how they'd been able to triumph over the great empire of Egypt. This particular one was erected around A.D. 80. A.D. 80? A.D. 80 not far from here, at a temple to the cult of Isis. When Rome fell, this obelisk also fell. But later, Christian popes, Rome's new rulers, also liked the idea of proclaiming their power with these columns. So, starting in the 1580s, they re-erected them, now topped with Christian crosses. Step right up to the Four Rivers Fountain. The fountain is by Gian Lorenzo Bernini, the man who remade Rome in the Baroque style. The water of the world gushes everywhere. It's brought to mankind by four burly river gods who symbolize the four quarters of creation. Horses plunge through the rocks, and the water of life sprouts exotic plants and animals from faraway lands. Stroll around the fountain counterclockwise. Start with the god who's leaning back and turning in toward the pillar. Which one? He'll be on your left. He's reaching back and touching the pillar with one hand. This is the mighty Danube. He represents the continent of Europe. Notice what's in his right hand. He's grabbing the coat of arms of the Pamphili Pope. He's the one who paid for this fountain. Head to the right, to the next statue. It's an old bearded guy, holding an oar between his legs. This is the Ganges, representing Asia. Continue on where you'll pass a palm tree. This is just one of many details that made this fountain seem really exotic in its day. Next up is the Nile, representing Africa. His head is covered with a cloth, since back then the Nile's headwaters were unknown. Continue on to the final statue. This is the Rio de la Plata in Uruguay, representing the Americas. He tumbles backward in shock. He's probably wondering how he ever made the top four. Notice the god's exotic facial features. Back in the 1600s, Europeans still didn't have a clear idea of just how to depict an American Indian. Beneath the statue is a pile of silver coins. They represent the easy-to-harvest wealth 
of the new world. Now, follow the Plata River God's gaze upward. He's looking at the Church of St. Agnes, which dominates the square. The church was the work of Francesco Borromini, Rome's other great Baroque architect. It has Borromini's signature motif, concave lines. Notice how the inward-curving facade helps reveal the dome. Borromini's elaborate facade epitomizes the curved symmetry of the Baroque era. It's also a fine example of Baroque deception. While the facade is mammoth, the actual church interior is quite small. It's only as wide as the four middle columns at the entrance. Borromini was Bernini's former student, but he grew to become Bernini's great rival. Legend says that when Bernini built this fountain, he got the final word. He designed the river god Plata to be looking up at Borromini's church and then tumbling backward in horror. It certainly looks that way and makes for a great tour guide story, but in fact, the fountain was completed before Borromini even began the church. At this point in the tour, you're free to roam the square. If you make it to the fountain at the far end, you'll see Neptune slaying a giant octopus. Otherwise, just enjoy the scene, which changes with the time of day. You might see street music, artists showing their work, fire-eaters, local Casanovas, and outdoor cafes that are worth their inflated prices for the view alone. And there's always gelato. You read my mind. There are a couple of good options nearby. The establishment called Trescalini. Yes, I see it over there. Trescalini. It's famous for its particular flavor of gelato called tartufo. That's a rich, chocolatey concoction. Piazza Navona is a great place to pause this audio tour and just pause. You can grab a gelato to go and continue on, or get a bite to eat, or just sit by the four rivers and enjoy river number five, the river of humanity that is Rome. Take a break, and when you're ready to move on, meet us back here at the Four Rivers Fountain and turn to the next track. From Piazza Navona to the Pantheon. Leave Piazza Navona from the Four Rivers Fountain. With your back to Borromini's church, head east down the short street called Corsia Agonale. You'll walk past rose peddlers and palm readers. Ahead of you, across the busy street, stands the stately Palazzo Madama. This fine Renaissance palazzo was named for a Madame Margarita, who married into the Medici family. It once housed the two Medici boys who grew to become popes in Michelangelo's day. The frieze on top celebrates the good life during that optimistic age. These days, the building houses the Italian Senate. Rome is the official capital of Italy, and it's here that its upper chamber meets to enact laws. Jog left, cross the street, and walk along the left side of the palace. Once across the busy street, you'll follow the brown sign to the Pantheon, which is straight down Via del Salvatore. As you walk, you'll notice that in this government area, security is high. Notice the street posts blocking traffic and the green booth for the military police. The place is guarded by a special force called the Carabinieri. Like Americans have dumb blonde jokes, Italians have dumb Carabinieri jokes. Hey, Lisa, you know why the Carabinieri always work in pairs? No. Why? Because one can read 
And the other can write. <laughs> well, hardy har har. We need to keep going. Hey, Lisa, here's another one. Oh, brother. Why does the carabinieri uniform have a red stripe down the pants? Let me guess. So when he gets dressed, he knows where his legs go. Oh, yeah. You've heard that one. Mm-hmm. Keep going until you reach the end of the block. When you reach the end of the block, look to your left. You'll see the stately white facade of the Church of San Luigi de Francesi. As the name Francesi implies, this is the French National Church in Rome. French motifs abound. At eye level, there's a statue of Charlemagne, the King of the Franks, and another of Saint Louis. In the medallions below, that fire-breathing reptile is the symbol of Francois I. He's the king who brought Leonardo da Vinci and the Italian Renaissance to France. And at the top of the church is a coat of arms with the fleur-de-lis. The church's real highlight is inside, some exquisite Caravaggio paintings in the far-left corner. If it's open, you could pause this audio tour and pop in. And it's free. Otherwise, continue straight, following the crowd, as everyone seems to be heading for the Pantheon. As you continue walking, notice the cobbles under your feet. These basalt cobbles are the same kind of stone the ancient Romans used. It's quarried from volcanic mountains south of here. Ah, like Mount Vesuvius. Yeah. The neighborhood we're walking through is 2,000 years old. But in ancient times, this area was on the outskirts of town. People lived and worked across town in the Forum, which was Rome's bustling business center. This area was called Campus Martius, a place set aside for military training. It was huge, nearly 500 acres, five times the size of Disneyland. It had open fields and parade grounds and was dotted with barracks and amphitheaters for fighters. There were racetracks, like the Piazza Navona, and temples to the gods, like the Pantheon. As ancient Rome fell this neighborhood became the new center of town. Medieval Romans abandoned the Forum, which was constantly pillaged by barbarians. They settled here, in this naturally flat land, in the bend of the Tiber River. It had easy access to water. It was near the Vatican, the new center of power, and running through it was the lucrative trade route of pilgrims headed to St. Peter's. Back to those cobbles. There's a lively debate these days about whether to replace them with modern pavement, which is more practical and comfortable, or to keep them, just like they are, for the character and to remember this part of their heritage. Rounding the next corner, you come to one of Rome's great sites, the Pantheon. The Pantheon. Perhaps the most magnificent building surviving from ancient Rome is this temple. It was called the Pantheon because it was dedicated to all Pan, the gods, Theos. The temple's columns show the scale the ancient Romans built on. They're 40 feet tall, 
made of granite, each of them carved from a single huge piece. The columns support a triangular-shaped Greek-style pediment. Try reading the inscription. M. Agrippa L. F. and so on. It's saying that Marcus Agrippa built the Pantheon. But in fact, it was built, or fetch it, by Emperor Hadrian around the year 120. The temple faces a piazza, as it has since ancient times. Back then, this was an elegant square, a gathering place. It was surrounded by columns supporting shaded walkways. The ancient Romans introduced the whole piazza culture, and as you can see, it thrives to this day. Notice how today's square slants down to the Pantheon. In ancient times, the square was much lower. The Pantheon actually stood above street level, approached by a staircase. But centuries of sediment from the flooding Tiber River have raised the piazza to today's height. Check out the fountain in the center of the square. The fountain itself dates from the 18th century, but the obelisk in the middle is ancient. It originally decorated a sanctuary near here, dedicated to the Egyptian goddess Isis. Rome had no problem worshipping the gods of other cultures. And since much of Rome's grain came from Egypt, they were more than happy to have a place right here for their Egyptian businessmen. By the way, notice how the fountain steps disappear into the pavement. Another case of modern sediment swallowing up older structures. The Pantheon is one of Rome's great wonders. Feel free to take some time on your own here. Stroll amid the forest of columns. Check out the huge bronze door. But as impressive as the outside is, the greatest wonder is inside. A magnificent room with a domed ceiling. This interior dome inspired later domes, including Michelangelo's at St. Peter's and Brunelleschi's Duomo in Florence. Our tour does not go inside, but we do have a companion tour dedicated solely to the Pantheon. This would be a great time to splice that into your experience. Otherwise, it's time to move on. From here, our walk continues past some interesting landmarks on the way to the Trevi Fountain. On the next track, Rick and I will guide you along. From the Pantheon to Piazza Capranica With your back to the Pantheon, veer to the right, head uphill toward the yellow sign that reads Casa del Café. This marks a coffee shop called Tazza d'Oro. This is one of Rome's top coffee shops. It dates back to the days when this area was granted a special license to roast coffee beans. Locals come here for a shot of espresso or, when it's hot, a refreshing granita di caffè con panna. That's a coffee slush with cream. If it's open, circle through the cafe. Enjoy the smell and energy of a classic Italian cafe scene. Coffee to go is simply wrong here in Rome. Locals pay at the cashier, bring their receipt to the barista, and enjoy an elegant little break. That's the whole idea. This scene is unchanged since the early 1980s when an American named Howard Schultz traveled to Italy. He was inspired to start a fancy coffee shop back in Seattle. Today, Starbucks is making its way back to Italy. Hey, Lisa, I'm taking a little break here. Let's go in. You enter Tazzadoro at the near side. I'm right with you. I'm not getting anything, but I do want to check the place out. And this is a handy place for a quick potty stop. If you're ordering a coffee, 
First, you line up at the cashier. Wow! Look at that list of drinks behind the cashier. There must be 70 coffee options. Move over, Starbucks. After you order and pay here, you give your receipt to the barista who'll give you your drink. Then just chill and sip with the locals. On a hot day, the Granita de Café is a big hit. Oh, that's a coffee slush with a dollop of whipped cream. Yep. And if you just want ice cream to go, there's a good gelato place across the street. When you're done with your coffee break, you exit out the far side. By the way, that convenient toilet I mentioned is back near the cashier. Whenever you're ready, let's continue on our walk. Keep going past the coffee shop, heading up Via Daily Orfani. After a short block, Via Daily Orfani opens up into an intimate square called Piazza Capranica. As you enter the square, directly ahead is a big plain building, the Palazzo Capranica. Notice the stubby tower on the left end. Back in medieval times, this tower stood much taller. Powerful nobles like the Capranicas needed such fortified towers for their own security. Medieval Rome had a skyline of these stone towers, kind of like the famous hill town of San Gimignano a couple hours north of here does today. But when a stronger central government arrived, the rulers decreed that all the nobles would need to cut off their towers. If you know where to look, you can see stubby remains like this all over Rome and all over Italy. The six-story building to the left is nothing special, but it's typical of a middle-class Roman apartment building, circa 1650. Look between the apartment and the palazzo. Find the circular little shrine on the street corner. Like the city is busy with tourists today, 500 years ago, this was the domain of pilgrims. Worshipful spots like this made the pilgrims feel welcome. Leave the piazza to the right of the palace, heading down the short street called Via Inaquiro. You'll pass by a church. This may look like just another of Rome's many places of worship. But like so many of Rome's churches, it's much older than its 300-year-old Baroque facade. People have worshipped here for at least 1,300 years. We're now headed to see something that's even older than the church. In fact, it's older than Christianity. It's as old as the birth of Rome itself. Via Inaquiro leads to a T intersection. At the intersection, turn left. You'll enter a big square dominated by a big and very old monument, another Egyptian obelisk. Parliament and its Obelisk This square with the Italian Parliament is marked by an Egyptian obelisk from the 6th century B.C. For half a millennium, it stood tall at a temple in Egypt. Then it was taken from Egypt here to Rome as a trophy by Augustus to proclaim his victory over Mark Antony and Cleopatra. The obelisk is made of red granite and stands 70 feet tall, or well over a 100 feet when you include the base. In Egypt, obelisks were connected with the sun god Ra. Some say the pointed stones were meant to look like sun rays. By extension, they symbolized the heavenly energy granted by the gods to the pharaohs, who were gods on earth. Roman emperors loved that idea. To proclaim their divinity, 
they erected obelisks in public places. Think of the engineering effort that brought this obelisk here. They had to quarry it, carve it out of a single piece of stone, and erect it in Egypt. Then, after the Romans came along, they had to take it down and roll it on logs to the water's edge, and then load it onto a special barge. Then they'd sail it across the Mediterranean and up the Tiber, and finally bring it overland to this spot and hoist it up. I bet there are lots of ancient obelisks littering the floor of the Mediterranean. Yep. Augustus set this obelisk up by his solarium. That was a shrine dedicated to the god of the sun. It worked as a sundial and a calendar. It cast a shadow on a set of lines that marked the days of the year. This followed the brand new calendar instituted by Augustus' stepdad, Julius Caesar. The obelisk was aligned so that on the day of Augustus' birthday, the shadow would fall directly across the solarium altar. After the fall of Rome, the obelisk was lost. It was rediscovered and re-erected right here in the 1700s. Just like the pharaohs and the emperors before them, popes also loved the idea of the heavens giving them divine powers as rulers here on earth. They topped these obelisks with crosses. This is the only one in Rome still capped with a pre-Christian ornament, a globe with a sunray on top. Today, this obelisk still functions as a sundial. In fact, follow the zodiac markings on the ground to our next site, the Parliament Building. This impressive building is where the lower chamber of Congress meets to govern the nation of Italy. You'll see heavy security. You may also see politicians coming and going, political demonstrations, and TV cameras. If some major law has just been passed, this stately building is often the backdrop for reporters on the TV news. The Palazzo has a long history of governance. Note the relief to the right of the door. It shows Lady Justice. Before Italy was unified back in the 19th century, the High Court of the Papal State met here. The building's spacious facade is designed by our old friend Bernini. It bulges in the middle to make this small square feel grander. At either end of the facade, notice the strips of jagged stones. This rustic back-to-nature style was popular in the Baroque age. We'll see more fake grotto stones in a few minutes at the Trevi Fountain. Oh, right. Molto bene. I've always dreamed of going to the Trevi Fountain. So, head to your right. A short cobbled block away is the next square. Piazza Colonna. As you walk, notice that you're now going downhill. The Parliament Palace sits atop one of ancient Rome's smallest hills, Monte Citorio. It's a man-made hill. This was the mound of dirt that was dug up when Augustus was building his Monument to the Sun. Those ancient Romans did everything on a supersized scale, including the huge column in the square coming up next. Piazza Colonna The square features a massive column. It has stood on this spot since the 2nd century A.D., the column's shaft is exactly 100 feet tall. That is, 100 ancient Roman feet. It's about 97 of our feet. Hmm, we must have bigger feet. I guess so. The column stands on a 30-foot base, which itself stands on a platform. The shaft is 12 feet across. 
It's a particularly imposing-looking column because it doesn't taper at the top. The whole thing is carved from the finest white marble in the world. It comes from the quarries of Carrara in northern Italy. Made famous because they were also Michelangelo's favorite. Get closer. You'll see that it's not made from a single piece of marble. It's 28 cylindrical blocks stacked atop each other like a stack of 10-ton checkers. The column is carved with a frieze that winds from the bottom all the way to the top. It tells the story of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, heroically battling the barbarians in around 170 A.D. At the very bottom, find the scene that shows the crucial start of the campaign. The Roman legions cross the Danube River to attack the barbarians. That would be in modern-day Czech Republic. Men and horses march across an ingenious pontoon bridge. It's supported by a row of boats that lets them cross the rushing current. The column is pure propaganda, trumpeting Marcus's triumph. In reality, after Marcus died, the barbarians got the upper hand, and that began Rome's long three-century fall. After Rome's fall, the statue of the Roman Emperor Marcus on top was replaced by a Christian. It's Paul the great traveler missionary who wrote much of the New Testament and helped bring Christianity to Rome. Paul may have died here in Rome, and he's one of the city's patron saints. Now, look real close at the column. You'll notice a few horizontal slits. The column is actually hollow and has a spiral staircase inside. These little windows provide light. Now step back and take in the whole piazza. In ancient times, this column was originally painted. It was once part of a colorful cityscape. 2,000 years ago, this was a major square surrounded by important classical buildings, such as a temple to Julius Caesar. Today, it's still important, but with neoclassical facades. Find the big white building adjacent to the parliament. This houses the headquarters for the prime minister's cabinet. And the big beige building with columns houses the right-wing newspaper Il Tempo. It's appropriately situated in what was the headquarters of the fascist party of Mussolini. From here, we'll cross the busy street, Via del Corso. We'll be entering that big palatial building with columns, which houses a shopping mall. Via del Corso and the Galleria The Via del Corso is Rome's main north-south boulevard. In ancient times, this was the Via Flaminia, the highway that stretched from Rome all the way across Italy to the Adriatic coast. In the Middle Ages, this street brought pilgrims to the Vatican. For 2,000 years, this was how all travelers from northern Europe first entered Rome and headed downtown. Look left up the street. You'll see the obelisk marking Piazza del Popolo. That was the north gate. And to the right, that grand edifice, is the Victor Emmanuel Monument, marking the center of ancient Rome. Just a reminder, we're crossing Via del Corso and entering the white-columned building. By the way, this long straight street was named for a famous medieval horse race, or Corso, that took place during the crazy carnival season that led up to Lent. This wild tradition continued until the late 1800s when a series of fatal accidents led to its cancellation. In 1854, Via del Corso became one of Rome's first gaslit streets. 
It still houses some of the city's chicest shops. Every evening, the Via del Corso closes to traffic for a few hours so Romans can show off what they might have purchased from those chic shops. That's when they take to the streets for their passeggiata. Enter the White Column shopping mall called the Galleria Alberto Sordi. If it's closed, you'll need to circle around the right side of the building on Via dei Sabini. We'll meet up with you around back. As you enter the mall, veer to the right. But first, note that there are convenient toilets to the left. Head down the right aisle, where we'll be exiting out the far end. The Galleria Sordi has been a shopping mall for nearly a century. You're walking through Art Nouveau Decor. Notice the stained glass skylights overhead. Mosaic floors below. The elegant carved wood. Grand galleries like this were built throughout Italy in the late 1800s. They reflect the energy of a newly united and proud nation. You'll pass by the biggest Italian bookstore chain, Feltrinelli's. By the way, Galleria Sordi is a new name for this old gallery. It was recently renamed to honor a beloved Italian movie actor known from his work in Fellini films. Exit the gallery out the far right end. Once outside, continue straight ahead up Via de Crociferi to the Trevi Fountain. As you head up Via de Crociferi, the tourist kitsch builds. We're headed for the Trevi Fountain. Hey, Rick, you know that Fellini film La Dolce Vita, where they splash around in the Trevi Fountain? Was Alberto Sordi in that? Well, Lisa, normally I'd have no clue whatsoever. But since this is an audio tour, I know everything. And no, he was not in that famous film. And don't get any ideas about you and me jumping in. Darn. I even brought my cocktail dress. By the way, that film by Fellini is just one of many reasons why the Trevi Fountain is so famous. Several other Hollywood films have popularized it and the tradition of tossing coins in. I'm ready for that, too. Keep going up Via de Crociferi. You'll soon reach the roar of the water, lights, and people at the Trevi Fountain. The Trevi Fountain The Trevi Fountain is a showcase for Rome's love affair with water. This liquid Baroque avalanche was conceived by Nicola Salvi in 1762. Salvi used the palace behind the fountain as a theatrical backdrop. Center stage is the enormous figure known simply as the ocean. He symbolizes water in every form. 
The statue stands in his shell-shaped chariot surfing through his wet kingdom. Water gushes from twenty-four spouts. It tumbles over thirty different kinds of plants. Winged horses represent cresting waves. They're led by tritons who blow on their conch shells. Rome took full advantage of the abundance of water brought into the city by its great aqueducts. Even in ancient times, there was a fountain here where locals came to get their water. It was dug lower than street level to give the fountains maximum gravitational oomph. Turn your back to the fountain now and locate the ionic columns built into the Benetton shop facing the fountain. These are a reminder that in ancient times this was where the neighborhood gathered, jugs on heads, to fetch their water. In the Renaissance and Baroque eras, the ancient aqueduct was renovated and reopened. The Trevi Fountain was built to celebrate that joyous event. After a thousand years of surviving on poor-quality well water, Romans could once again enjoy pure water brought from the distant hills east of the city, like their ancient cousins did. The square that faces the fountain has a lively atmosphere. The magic is enhanced by the fact that no streets directly approach it. You can hear the excitement as you draw near, and then, bam, you're there. Enjoy the scene. Lucky Romeos clutch dates, while unlucky ones clutch beers. And then there's the coins. Romantics toss a coin over their shoulder into the fountain. The legend says it'll give you a wish and assure you return to Rome. Over the years, more ridiculous legends have proliferated. Two coins brings romance. Three means marriage. No coins means you're divorced and paying alimony. It's all pretty silly. But hey, it's Rome, and the world is yours. Make up your own wish and toss a coin. Some people poo-poo the idea that a coin assures your return to Rome. But, you know, every year I go through this touristic ritual, and it actually seems to work. Before we continue on, take some time here to people watch. Go ahead, whisper a few breathy bellows and bellas before leaving. Ciao, bello. Ciao, bella. Cara mio. By the way, if you need a little more privacy, there's often a more peaceful zone at water level on the far right. And I don't want to ruin the atmosphere, but watch your wallets and purses. There are a lot of pickpockets. Enjoy the scene and meet us back here when you're ready to move on. From here, our tour has a bit of a lull in the sightseeing action. Frankly, between here and the Spanish Steps, which is our last stop, there's not all that much to see. Some may find it easier to just pause the audio tour, get out your map, and head straight to the Spanish Steps, track 16. It's about a 10-minute walk away. Or you can stick with us, keep listening to the audio tour, and let Lisa and I guide you step-by-step step all the way to the Spanish Steps. Basically, we're headed to the Spanish Steps for the walk's finale, and we'll make a few so-so stops along the way. Then let's get started. Face the Trevi Fountain. Walk around the right side of the fountain, up Via del Stamparia. Your first landmark is three minutes ahead. It's the busy cross street called Via del Tritone, where we'll see a ruined aqueduct. Rick, take us there. The aqueduct ruins Rome's water. 
As you walk, I'll tell you a little more about Rome's famous fountains. We've seen several so far. All are fed by fresh spring water, carried into the city by aqueducts. Up ahead, we'll get a glimpse. A very tiny glimpse. Yes, but a glimpse nevertheless, at one of the original aqueducts. It's 2,000 years old. As you keep walking toward the big, busy Via del Tritone, consider that Romans have enjoyed some of Europe's best water since ancient times. Back then, water was considered an essential amenity, even for the lower classes. They loved going to the baths where they'd soak in the steam room and cool off in the swimming pool. Their public latrines had water flowing beneath the seats to flush everything away. Instead of toilet paper, they actually used a sponge on a stick and rinsed it in the rushing water below. I stayed in a hotel like that once. The rich even had water piped into their homes. And Romans considered good drinking water essential to their health. So where did all this water come from? It certainly didn't come from the muddy Tiber River. That was where the Cloaca Maxima, the ancient sewage system of the Forum, flushed the sewage of hundreds of thousands of ancient Romans. So, the ancients brought in fresh water from the distant hillsides. Places like the springs near Tivoli, 25 miles away. They used an aqueduct system. It was all gravity-powered. Water flowed gradually downhill through stone channels. Most of the channels were underground. But at certain points, they needed to keep the water flowing ever so gradually downhill as it crossed obstacles. Things like a river or a gorge or a steep drop in elevation. This is where the famous aqueducts came in. These were huge bridges of stone that carried a small channel of water across the top. At its peak, ancient Rome had nine separate aqueduct systems, some bringing in water from 50 miles away. The water came in, was stored in reservoirs, and channeled through pipes to the citizens. Rich people got it directly, while the poor got their water from neighborhood fountains. This is why Rome has so many traditional fountains, and artists through the ages have decorated these fountains with watery motifs. The Trevi had Mr. Ocean. The Four Rivers had the river gods. There are sea nymphs, Neptunes, boats, turtles, and horn-blowing tritons. And speaking of tritons, by now you should be approaching the busy cross street called Street of the Tritons, Via del Tritone. When you get there, cross the street. If you're not there yet, don't worry. We won't leave you behind. And you may need to wait a bit to cross this busy street. Once across the street, continue straight ahead up Via del Nazareno. About 30 meters along Via del Nazareno, keep an eye out for number 9 on the left, from where you can look through a black iron fence to see the ancient aqueduct. Rick, what happened to all those aqueducts? Well, let me tell you. When Rome was falling in the year 537, the barbarian tribe called the Goths surrounded the city. To strangle the Romans into submission, they used a pretty simple trick. Just break an aqueduct and cut off the city's water supply. Losing its water helped plunge Rome into a thousand years of decline, disease, and B.O. During the Middle Ages, this lack of water is one reason why people moved from the Forum to this part of town. It was closer to the Tiber River, which now became the city's main water source. Then, in the 1400s, Romans discovered an ancient book. It told them where the buried aqueducts were and how the old system worked. 
In the 15 and 1600s, energetic popes restored the aqueducts. Water once again flowed to the neighborhood fountains for the general public to use. By now, you should be approaching Via del Nazareno number 9 on the left. Find the iron mesh grill. If you peek through there, down below street level, you'll get a glimpse of an exposed bit of ancient aqueduct. This is the Aqua Virginae. An inscription on it says it was rebuilt by the Emperor Claudius in 45 AD after it had been dismantled by his predecessor, Caligula. Nowadays, Romans still get their water from the surrounding hills. They use some of the original aqueduct system from 2,000 years ago. In fact, the Aqua Virginia system still feeds the Trevi Fountain. And Romans also enjoy bottled waters from nearby mineral springs, some naturally fizzy or frizzante. It's clear that Romans today appreciate their water and drink as well as the ancients did. Let's move on. It's a five-minute walk from here to our next stop, but the route is easy. To start, continue another 50 meters or so down Via del Nazareno. At the T intersection, turn right on Via Sant'Andrea della Frate. From there, keep walking while Rick and I guide you. The Immaculate Conception Column Walk north up via Sant'Andrea della Frati. On the right, at number 16, is the low-key national headquarters of Italy's Democratic Party, the PD. Keep going up the street. As we've seen, Rome is the nation's political capital. It's also Italy's religious and cultural capital. But it's not the business capital. That's Milan. And so the two cities are constantly bickering. The Northerners say the Romans are lazy with cushy government jobs. They call it Roma Ladrona, Rome the Thief. They think of it as dirty, inefficient, and corrupt. On the other hand, Romans dismiss the Milanese as uptight workaholics. And they point out that when the Northerners do go on holiday, where do they come? To Rome. That's where they can enjoy some good food, the rich history, and the one thing Romans have above all others. La Dolce Vita. Via Sant'Andrea veers slightly left and becomes Via Propaganda. Via Propaganda got its name because it was from here that the Catholic Church propagated, or spread, its message to the world. The epicenter was midway up the block at number one. This white and yellow building was the palace of the propagation of faith, or Propaganda Fide. The building was designed by that dynamic Baroque duo, Bernini and Borromini. You can definitely see Borromini's hand in the concave lines. There's some above the entryways and also higher up on the cornice. (laughs) I love the cornices. The yellow and white flag over the door announces that this palace is still owned by the Vatican. Keep going up the street. Back in the 1600s, the Propaganda Palace was a big deal. It was the headquarters of the Catholic Church's PR department, a priority after the Reformation. 
In the 1800s, this department was charged with educating people about a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. This was the idea that not only was Jesus born pure, but his mother, Mary, was also conceived without sin. The idea had been around since medieval times, but in 1854, Pope Pius IX finally proclaimed it official dogma. They celebrated the announcement by building a major monument, and that's just ahead. Via Propaganda opens up into a spacious square dominated by a single column topped with a statue of Mary. Circle around to the front of the monument for the best view. You know, Rick, this walk has sure featured a lot of monuments from different periods of Roman history. And this statue of Mary tries to tie a lot of those different traditions together, right up to the present. Gaze up at Mary atop the column. The bronze statue of Mary includes all her traditional symbols. She wears a diadem of stars for a halo. She's standing atop a crescent moon atop a globe of the earth, which is crushing a satanic serpent. To hammer home the idea that the Immaculate Conception doctrine had a long tradition, the architect placed Mary atop a marble column that was itself ancient. At the base sit statues of venerable and sage prophets all in total agreement with the new doctrine. Notice, by the way, that the grand backdrop for the column is the Propaganda Palace itself with its Vatican flag. Picture the festive scene here every December 8th. That's the feast day of the Immaculate Conception. The Pope attends. The fire department brings out their ladder truck and they place fresh flowers high on Mary's statue. Even today, you may see wilted remains of a flower wreath in Mary's hand. This is the traditional event that kicks off Rome's Christmas season. Now let's continue ahead to our final stop, the Spanish Steps. As you walk, notice to Mary's immediate left stands the Spanish Embassy. Rome has double the embassies as a normal capital. That's because every nation needs to staff two embassies here, one to Italy and one to the Vatican. This Spanish embassy is for the Vatican. And because of this embassy, the square and its famous steps just ahead are called Spanish. Now continue ahead to Piazza di Spagna, where there's always a crowd. As we near the end of our walk, you may be getting a little hungry. As you may have noticed, the Italians are masters at the art of fine eating. Lingering over a multi-course meal at an outdoor table, watching a parade of passers-by while you sip wine with loved ones, it's one of Rome's great pleasures. Rome has a few signature dishes. There's spaghetti alla carbonara. Gnocchi alla romana is the little dumplings. In season, they enjoy fresh artichokes or carciofi. Saltimbocca is veal in a marinated sauce. And, of course, there's always the traditional tripa alla romana. Tripe, or intestines. It's as good as it sounds. Yum! And for dessert, why not do as the locals do? Grab a gelato, a cup or a cone, and stroll the streets. You soon reach the happy white noise of a sea of people out enjoying another of Rome's venerable gathering spots, the Spanish Steps.
The Spanish Steps The wide, curving staircase is one of Rome's iconic sights. Its 138 steps lead sharply up from the Piazza d'Espagna. Partway up, the steps fan out around a central terrace, forming a butterfly shape. The design culminates at the top, in one last obelisk, framed between two Baroque church towers. At the foot of the steps is the aptly named Sinking Boat Fountain. It was built by Bernini, or maybe his father, Bernini. That would be Pietro rather than Gian Lorenzo. That's right, Pietro. This fountain is powered by that same ancient aqueduct we've seen earlier, the Aqua Virginae. Because the water pressure here is so low, the water can't shoot high in the air. So Bernini... Or his father. Yes, they had to design the fountain to be low-key, a sinking boat filled with water. The Piazza d'Espagna and the Spanish Steps are named for that Spanish embassy we just saw. It's been here for about 300 years. The area's been the hangout of many romantics over the years, Richard Wagner, Goethe, and others. For 19th century British aristocrats, this was the culmination of their grand tour of the famous sites of Europe. They came to Rome to see the decaying ruins, to enjoy the warm climate, and to kick back and enjoy the laid-back Roman lifestyle. Here, at the Spanish Steps, the British poet John Keats pondered his mortality. He lived in the orange building on the right side of the steps, and it was there that he died of tuberculosis at the ripe old age of 25. His fellow romantic, the poet Lord Byron, lived just across the square at number 66. I think I'll linger here for a while, but when we're done with the steps, how do I get home? When you're ready to leave, the metro stop called Spagna is right here, or grab a taxi at either end of the piazza. To reach the top of the steps sweat-free, there's a free elevator just inside the metro stop. By the way, there's a pay toilet in the piazza. It's just by the middle palm tree. And if you want some more sightseeing or some interesting shopping, you could stroll downhill down Via Condotti. It's lined with high-end fashion shops, Gucci and the like. And a block down that street is the venerable Café Greco, so popular with those 19th century romantic travelers. Now, do a final 360-degree spin and take in the whole scene. The piazza is a happening place, both day and night. Think of some of the themes we've enjoyed on this walk. Fountains, obelisks, piazzas, statues. Gelato. Most definitely. We've seen Rome through the ages. First, the grand monuments of ancient times. We saw how Renaissance popes revived these treasures and repurposed them to make glorious urban spaces. But most of all, we've seen a bit of today's Rome, a city where friends and families live much the same kind of life as their ancient cousins. It's the Roman people who make this city what it is. And there they are, just like us, enjoying a stroll through the heart of Rome. We hope you've enjoyed this slice of Rome. Thanks to Gene Openshaw, the co-author of this tour. If you're planning more sightseeing, we have lots of audio tours available for Rome, including A Walk Through the Heart of Rome, The Colosseum, The Roman Forum, The Pantheon, St. Peter's, The Vatican Museums and Sistine Chapel, as well as walks through Trastevere, The Jewish Ghetto, and The Remains of Ostia and Pompeii. 
In one day? No. Remember, this tour was excerpted from the Rick Steves Rome Guidebook by Rick Steves and Gene Openshaw. For more details on eating, sleeping, and sightseeing in Rome, refer to the latest edition of that guidebook. For more free audio tours and podcasts, and for information about our TV shows, bus tours, and travel gear, visit our website at ricksteves.com. This tour was produced by Cedar House Audio Productions. Grazie. Ciao. And buon viaggio. viaggio.